When is the last time you found yourself in a difficult spot? Uh, experiencing hardship and difficulty and just one of those tight spots in life. When's the last time you find your, found yourself in one of those sets of circumstances that uh, are going to wrap their tentacles around us and just fill our hearts with despair? Found yourself in a situation where everything all seemed hopeless. Well, the reality is that for some of us, um, that seems like a pretty fresh memory. Uh, we don't have to tap into our long-term memory bank at all. Some of you might say, well, that was me just last week. Uh, others might say, well, you know, a couple months ago I had that kind of an experience. <laughs> it was no fun. Uh, some of us might be saying, huh, that's me this morning. That's exactly where I find myself today. You see, difficulty, hardship, tight spots, they, they seem to be within our ready grasp. It's as if they're lurking in our neighborhood and just waiting to knock on our door or press our doorbell and see if they can find a place to land. Well, actually, they really aren't that polite, are they? They don't knock on the door. They don't ring the doorbell. They just seemingly invade our space. The Old Testament writer Job, in his familiar words, says, as surely as the sparks fly upward, so man is born for adversity. That's not Job being pessimistic. That's not Job having a bad Monday. That's just Job making observations about the way in which the world works. My question for us this morning is that when we find ourselves in those kinds of moments, difficult moments, hardship, the the tight spots in life, what is it that we need to do? What is it that we need to experience? What is it that we need to remember? We're going to look at an Old Testament passage this morning in which uh, Israel's king relays to us his experience as he found himself in one of those dark moments, one of those tight spots. He's going to tell us his story. He's going to share with us part of his experience and then some of the instruction that he has for us as well. So if you have a copy of God's Word or you have your device, I invite you to to join me in our passage this morning, which is Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Uh, This psalm is characterized by two major moves. Uh, First move is verses 1 through 10, and that's probably the, the part of our psalm that many of us will be most familiar with. And then we have verses 11 through 22. In the first part of the psalm, in verses 1 through 10, uh, David relays his testimony. That's where David shares his story, tells us what happened, and the implication that that should have for you and me. And that's where he'll encourage us to trust. And then when we come to verses 11 through 22, that's where, I like to say, David puts his, uh, his instructor's hat on. I don't really know what an instructor's hat looks like, but he puts his instructor's hat on, and he's going to teach us. He's going to uh, basically say, uh, this was my situation. This is how God met me in my moment, and God can meet you in your moment too, and here's how. So Psalm 34, let's pick it up at verse 1. 
in your English text. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then here's our second move. Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's God's word for us and our attention this morning. Uh, Two major moves. David tells us his testimony, and then he gives us his instruction. First thing that David is going to remind us of is that experience, experiences shape our lives. Experiences shape our lives. Uh, David here in this psalm is writing from the perspective of, of the rear view mirror of a life-changing experience. A, a time in which he experienced one of his darkest moments and, and God showed up and God met him in his moment of great difficulty and God rescued him. A little wonder that David would be ready to worship that David would be ready to praise as a result of that. And so here in this psalm, David, he reminds us that experiences shape our lives and ultimately need to lead us to worship. Experiences impact us. And those experiences that we encounter, they're, they're not by accident, but in the tapestry of God's great design. He delights to use those experiences and ultimately wants us to come to that place of worship. Now, I want to be very careful to say and be sensitive that sometimes those experiences in life, not only are they difficult, but they uh, are a huge challenge for us to work through. 
my encouragement to each of us this morning without minimizing those kinds of difficult experiences is to be reminded that even Joseph could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Uh, David reminds us that the experiences of life, they shape us, but they're ultimately intended to lead us to worship. And that's where David begins in this first stanza. And he says we are to worship God at all times. Here he gives us our praise, our invitation to praise. And he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. And here we see David is occupied with his God. He's taken up with God. Three times over in just that first verse and a half, he reminds us of that. You know, it's hard to read this part of the psalm and and not enter into the emotion which David expresses himself. No sense of monotone voice here. As David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. That's one of the beautiful things about poetry, isn't it? One of the wonderful things about the Psalms is that they are a vehicle. This type of narrative, this type of literature rather, is the means by which the writer can express themselves in great emotion. And so as we go through the Psalms, one of our encouragements is that we enter into that emotion. Nothing monotone here, nothing boring about David here as he gives this challenge to us after he expresses himself that he is committed to worshiping the Lord. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. To pick up on that, I will bless the Lord at all times. If we understand that correctly, David is reminding us that there's no time in life that is not appropriate for us to bless the Lord, that his praises should be on our lips. I don't know about you, but I think I do, because it's true of me. As I read that and as I look at that, that strikes me as a, as a high challenge. That strikes me as a, as a big ask. That kind of puts it right up there with some of those New Testament commands, like in, in everything, give thanks. Like pray without ceasing. If your neighbor wants your shirt, give him your cloak. If he strikes you on this side of the face, turn the other cheek. Pretty high challenges. It's a big ask. But that's what the psalmist is reminding us. And it's a challenge to us. David is going to lead us by way of example. That in those moments of deliverance, in those moments of great victory, don't forget the one who gave us the victory. Don't forget the one who granted us the deliverance. We need to praise him. And we can handle that a little bit easier, probably, because in those kinds of moments, we're ready to praise. But that challenge also reminds us that in those moments before the deliverance, before the victories, in the moments when we find ourselves, not from the rearview mirror perspective, but when we find ourselves right in the eye of the storm, David challenges us, to remember to praise the Lord. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, why is the psalmist so passionate about worshiping God and praising God? Very simply because he cried out to his God and God heard him. 
God answered him. David found himself in a near-death experience, and God came to his rescue. God delivered him. And he recounts that story for us. He recounts his testimony for us in verses 4 through 7. And that reminds us that, that testimonies are a powerful thing. Stories of God's work in the lives of others encourage us to worship him. Uh, that's why David is going to tell us the story. You know, we need to be telling our stories to one another as well, don't we? Testimonies are powerful things. And we occasionally obviously do that when we get together and we hear the story, the testimony of those here who are part of our fellowship. And there's something about that that, that knits us together, doesn't it? And day to day, we need to have those people, and I trust you have those people in your life, that you can share your story and that you can be that person who hears their stories because the story of God being at work in the lives of others can encourage us to worship. It's one of the great values of Christian biography, uh, listening and uh, rather reading and learning about the experiences of uh, those who have lived in past generations or even some contemporaries as they relay the story of God being at work in their lives. Uh, Stories of God's experience of being at work in people's lives have a way to encourage us to worship. And so David tells us his story. Uh, One of... uh, This is one of the many psalms in which David has written. There's actually 14 of them. Obviously, David wrote a lot of psalms, but there's 14 psalms that David wrote. And at the beginning of the psalm, there is a heading, there's a superscription that uh, gives us uh, a description of the event or the experience out of which this psalm was born. Um, These are not throwaway lines when we read those descriptions. These are actually part of the inspired text. And so if you were sometimes uh, to pick up a commentary that's uh, dealing with the text in original language, this will actually be be verse 1. I didn't read it as verse 1 this morning, but technically I should have, but I wanted to just wait and have us look at it at this particular point in time. So we go back and we look at that heading, and mine reads, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out. And he went away. This is an event that uh, is recorded for us earlier in our Old Testament, back in First Psalm, or pardon me, First Samuel, uh, chapter twenty-one. So we're going to keep your finger in Psalm thirty-four. Let's go back uh, to the narrative account here, dealing with this experience of David, First Samuel twenty-one, and we'll pick it up at verse ten. First Samuel twenty-one. And verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? 
Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. All the context here is that David was fleeing from from King Saul. Those who are familiar with your Older Testament, uh, we know that Saul was the king of Israel. But God said that he rejected Saul as king. And so Samuel is sent to anoint the future king. And he anoints David to be the king. But Saul was still living. Saul was still the king. David was the king in waiting. And David uh, invoked the, provoked the jealousy of Saul. David was very popular with the people. And Saul was intimidated by David, and he was very jealous of David. And so David had to leave the presence of Saul in order to escape with his life. And so David finds himself living in exile, as a, living as a refuge. Uh, things have become so difficult for David, so desperate, that he actually decided to seek refuge, to seek safety with King Achish, the one who is the king of Gath. The Philistines. Gath, we remember as uh, being where Goliath is from, Goliath the great Philistine, who several years before David had killed in that great showdown. And here now is David, the king of Israel, seeking refuge, seeking protection at the hands of the dreaded Philistines. Think of it. He is the anointed king of Israel, but here he is seeking and taking refuge in the hands of the enemy. It's, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But that's the moment of desperation that David finds himself in. That's the kind of tight spot. That's the kind of hardship, the kind of difficulty that David is dealing with here. Prior to David uh, visiting or going to Gath, he visited the tabernacle at Nob. And, and that's where we read of him and his encounter with the, the priest Ahimelech. And that's where he convinces Ahimelech to give him the, uh, the loaf of the holy bread just so he has something to eat. And David also didn't have a weapon, and so that's where he actually gets the sword of Goliath. And then David goes and he shows up at Gath. And while Achish apparently doesn't recognize David, some of his men do. And things get more than just a little awkward. It's unknown for a brief moment of time whether David is going to be revealed for who he really is. And so in this predicament, David impersonates that that he's a madman, that he's insane, that he's lost his mind. And in the the presence of King Achish, Achish and the others, he marks up the city gates. He lets the spit and the saliva comes down onto his beard. And, well, it works because Achish, instead of killing him, assumes him to be insane, and dismisses him. And he says, Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? And therein, David's life was spared. From Gath, he then went to the cave at Adullam, of Adullam, or at Adullam. Perhaps it was there that he penned the psalm. We really don't know the chronology of when he penned the psalm. But he escapes to Adullam. And so in this context of the testimony which David recounts here, he tells us in the relays, verses 4 through 7, 
And he said, verse 4, I sought the Lord. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Uh, David could have said when I was in the presence of King Achish, I, I thought it was game over. But God was merciful to me. Now many think and believe that this was not David's best and finest moment. It's hard to argue with that. Uh, that seeking refuge in Gath at the hand of the Philistines was a matter of David taking things into his own hands, coming up with his own strategy rather than relying on the Lord for his protection and safety. See, it was not only dangerous for David what he did, but um, it put the future of the whole Messianic line in question. Uh, David had been wiped out. There goes your Messianic line. It was a great risk for the entire nation. It was hardly conduct that was fitting for Israel's king, one of whose key and chief responsibilities was to provide protection for the people of God. And while all of that is true, what we do know is that David ultimately cried out to the Lord, the only one who could truly meet him in his need and deliver him. In that moment when the chips were down, God delivered him. And in this psalm, there's almost this disparity between the gravity of the situation, the unwise actions of David, over against the enthusiasm and the ecstasy that occupies David as he gives thanks to God. We can probably rightfully assume that David has confessed his sin to the Lord and his lack of trust and has been forgiven and now here recounting the precarious situation and God's grace and his mercy to him. He just wants to worship the Lord. You see, sometimes we can find ourselves in hardships and difficulties that are the result of things beyond our control, things that we have no control over. And sometimes we find ourselves in tight spots in life in which we make some decisions that not our greatest moment, not our best moment, not the greatest expression of wisdom. But we still can come to the Lord and cry out to him. And God has the ability and the delight and the desire many times to take those kinds of situations and transform them and redeem them, if you will. David had that kind of an experience. In a tight spot, God shows up. God impacted his life, and he was changed. You see, when God comes to the rescue, it does change us, doesn't it? It does impact us. The experiences of life shape us and ultimately need to lead us to worship. And as David reflects and thinks back on his experience, he's reminded of just how desperate he was. And he says in verse 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This poor man, David is here speaking of himself. David is the poor man. He might be the anointed king of Israel, the king in waiting, but in this moment, he was poor. I mean, he goes to the tabernacle and persuades Ahimelech to give him some food, give him the loaf of showbread. Uh, he borrows the sword of Goliath. 
And now here before Achish, it seems that he might very well be on borrowed time as his life flashed before him, wondering if King Achish Achish was going to bring a quick end to his life. But he says in verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. It ought not to surprise us, ought not to surprise anyone that this deliverance happened because of verse 7. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It's a reminder that many times God will be doing things behind the scenes, things that we are unaware of, faithfully acting on our behalf. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who, who fear him. This phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used several times throughout the Old Testament. Frequently it's used with, with the patriarchs. Three times it's used in the Psalms, only three times. And this is, this is one of them. We would understand the angel of the Lord to uh, be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the incarnation, we don't, we don't read of the angel of the Lord. And David here has this encounter and this reminder that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Amazing protection that David experienced. It's a reminder to us that many times God is behind the scenes working as only he can work in order to bring about deliverance. The Philistine men, they recognized David. Why didn't Achish recognize him? David, is Achish just kind of naive? Was he a little hard of seeing? No, probably none of those things. David would say it was God providing protection. It was God running interference. The angel of the Lord encamping around those who fear him. Remember 2 Kings 6, uh, later on in Israel's history, the account of Elisha and his servant. Uh, The Syrians are wanting to mount an attack against Israel, and every time the king of Syria comes up with a strategy, uh, he can never surprise the Israelites. They're always prepared for him, and the reason is that it's revealed to Elisha what the king of Syria is about to do, and he goes and he tips off the king of Israel. One can appreciate well, that could be rather frustrating. So the king of Syria decides that he will go and deal with Elisha, the prophet. If he can deal with the information like then they can have some, some success against the Israelites. And so he sends his people and they surround the city at night. And then in the morning, Elisha's servant, he goes outside and he's going to go and get some water. And he goes out and he sees all these people. He does a, a 180 rather quick and he goes back and he tells Elisha, what's going on? And he says, what shall we do? And Elisha encourages him that he doesn't need to worry. He says, those who are for us, are more than those who are against us. And of course, the servant doesn't know. All he's seen is the enemy. And then Elisha prays and he says, Oh Lord, he said, open his eyes so that he may see. And the Lord wonderfully provided protection in ways that sometimes we don't even get to see. That's what David is talking about here. We need to be encouraged, whatever your tight spot is this morning, whatever your difficulty We need to be reminded that God is behind the scenes, even if we cannot see, working his divine will and arranging circumstances. He is there doing what only he 
can do. That God is present to work and to deliver. And as a result, David can say in verse 8, this wonderful invitation, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, David here is thankful for his own experience. Uh, But David, he is a good king. And as a good king, he is concerned for the well-being of the people in his kingdom. He's concerned for all his subjects. Uh, He wants the best for them too. I mean, he doesn't just want his people to be happy for him, but he wants them to experience what he experienced, namely the goodness of God, that he wants his story to be their story. And this morning, by implication, he wants his story to be our story this morning. And so he gets very missionary-minded as he encourages others to trust. You see, stories of God's work in the lives of others, they not only encourage us to worship, but they encourage us to trust. And trusting him is part of our worship. And so he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That expression, oh, taste and see, uh, conjures up images from the physical realm, and he's using it as a metaphor and applying it to the spiritual realm. It conjures up the idea of enjoying some special delicacy of food, some special treat, if you will, and you take it and you indulge and you say to your friends, you've got to taste it. Here, try it. You know, Starbucks comes out with their latest uh, special latte flavor or some other specialty drink, and you take a sip and then you say to your friends, here, try a drink. Of course, we aren't doing that now. During COVID, we, of course, we wouldn't do that. Maybe with our kids, we might risk it. But that's the idea. And, and David is saying, Oh, taste and see that the, Lord is go- is, that the Lord is good. Not to be disrespectful. But he's encouraging us to give God a try. Put God to the test. Trust him and see how good it is to take refuge in him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, therein the psalmist concludes this first move of this psalm as he reminds us that the experiences of life, they shape us and they ultimately need to lead us to worship. And now as we come to the second major move, he's going to expand his appeal for us to experience what he, he experienced. As I said before, this is where he puts on his his teacher's hat, his instructor's hat, provides instruction for how his story can be our story. You see, he doesn't want us to walk away from this psalm saying or thinking to ourselves, well, David, I'm glad that that worked out so well for you. I'm glad that's your story. But that's not my story. And so here in this second section, he provides some instruction. And there he's going to teach us that experiencing the work of God in our lives requires us living in accordance with God's design. We might read through this psalm, we might hear of David's experience, or we might read the experience of others, and there's something within us that says, man, I'd like that to be my experience. I'd like that to be my encounter. And David is saying, yeah, it can be. It can be. 
But experiencing the work of God in our lives requires us living in accordance with God's design. Might I suggest to you that each one of us, as I've just hinted at, each one of us has this desire to see the reality of God at work in our lives. Don't you have that desire this morning? Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, what man is there who desires life, who loves many days, that he may see good? Who doesn't desire the way of life? And life here is understood, not just the way of existence, but it's the idea of life that is full and life that is abundant. And a life that is full and a life that is abundant is a life that experiences the reality of God at work. Who doesn't desire many days, length of days, he says. That's something that, high, that is highly valued by all. And then who doesn't desire good? The good here is the way of blessing, the blessing of God. Of course, deep down inside, we all do. David reminds us here that experiencing the work of God in our lives is the deep-seated desire of every person. Now, there may be many who might not think that. They might not realize it to be true. There might be those who actually even deny it, suppress it. But the psalmist believes that this reality, this desire to see God at work in our lives is a deep-seated longing of every person. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because each one of us is created in the image of God, fashioned and designed for relationship with him. Each one of us is designed for relationship with God, the kind of relationship in which we get to experience the working of God in our lives. We all desire that. The psalmist here is convinced that 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 the kind of reality that he experienced, God being at work in his life, God intervening in his life and circumstances, is the kind of reality that can belong to each one of us. But how can that be? Well, we know that it begins with tasting, as he says in verse 8, but that's not where it ends. And so he's going to remind us. Notice what he says in verse 11. It's going to show us how. He gives a special appeal as he says, Come, O children, the term of intimacy. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You want to experience the reality of God being real in your life and at work in your life? He said, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. See, to experience the work of God in our lives, we need to be living in accordance with God's design. Here he reminds us that that means living life in the fear of God of God. He's saying as it were, this is the secret. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's reminiscent of Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Where is the true meaning to life found? Where is fulfillment in life found? And he he keeps us waiting until he gets to the end of the book, and then he gives us the punchline. What's he say? He says, fear God. Uh, Keep his commandments, and know that for all things you are accountable to God. On first blush, it might seem that that's a a gigantic pin that's going into the balloon of life and letting all the air out. Somehow God wants to spoil all the fun. But of course, that's not true. It's Solomon there and it's David here reminding us of the way in which life is, is to work, to live life in accordance with God's design. 
means to live life in the fear of the Lord. So if that's the secret, experiencing the work of God in our lives, then what does it mean, the fear of the Lord? Generally, when we think of this term, the fear of the Lord, we make a distinction between what some typically uh, understand or the first thought that might come to their life is, is being fearful. And this caricature idea of God sitting in heaven with a big club over his head and just waiting to smack us down as soon as we step out of line. And so we live fearfully. And of course, we understand that the fear of God is spoken in the scripture as uh, the idea of God being holy and majestic and, and awesome and us living reverentially before him. And those distinctions are good for us to keep in mind. Of course, it's also true that if we're living life uh, in opposition to God, then, then we do need to be fearful ultimately in terms of the future judgment. But, but that's not where David focuses on here. Those are good distinctions to make, but that is not David's emphasis here. His emphasis is not a feeling, and it's not in an emotion or an attitude or a disposition, but rather his emphasis is on action. His description of the fear of the Lord is bound up in, in right action. It involves doing what is right. Notice how the fear of the Lord just gets woven right into the, the application of, of shoe leather, daily experience. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, I'll teach you the fear of God. And then he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turning away from evil, pardon me, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's interesting for David that the fear of the Lord is not some kind of ethereal, fanciful, nebulous kind of idea. It has some very tangible expressions and manifestations. I remember being in chemistry class and having some fun with mercury at our table and poured a little mercury on the table there, and then you try to pick it up and catch it. You can't get your hands on it, right? You can't, you can't do that. It just escapes us. Um, David's idea of the fear of the Lord is nothing like that. It's not a nebulous idea. It's not this ethereal idea. It's very, some very concrete uh, character descriptions and manifestations of what the fear of God looks like. So he says, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Those words sound very wisdom-like, don't they? If we didn't know where these words were found and we just heard someone reading them to us, we probably would think that they were reading from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9 and 10. And in Proverbs, the idea of wisdom is to live skillfully in the ways of God. Uh, to be wise is to be skilled in living life in accordance with God's design. And see how practical David makes it here. He talks about the use of our tongue. He talks about seeking what is good. He talks about seeking peace in our relationships. It's possible, perhaps, we don't know, that David might be highlighting some things that he learned in this whole experience. Perhaps we don't know, but perhaps if he had controlled his tongue and his interactions and not pursued deceit at his only way out, the things would have been different in his dealings with Achish and the Philistine men. He might not have even ended up there. Perhaps it was his tongue that, and his words that backed him into the corner, and deceit was his, seemingly his only ally. A seeking and doing good is twofold. 
It involves turning away from that which is wrong, that which is evil, and actively pursuing that which is right. And the same twofold emphasis is true for peace. He says, seek peace and pursue it. And the peace that's in focus here is, is not so much the idea of peace with God. That's just kind of a backdrop. That's a given to the psalm. But rather, it's talking about peace in our relationships with other people. We need to form those relationships. We need to desire the peace in those relationships. And then we, we need to actively pursue it. It speaks of hard work. And this is David's description the kind of way of life that is in accordance with God's design. This is the way of life that's lived in the fear of God. And so what we've seen so far in this second section is that experiencing the work of God in, in our lives is the desire of each one of us. And then secondly, if we're going to experience the working of God in our lives, then David reminds us that we need to live lives in accordance with God's design. And he speaks of the fear of the Lord. And if today we resolve to do that, then we can be assured of one other crucial thing. In verses 15 through 22, he reminds us that, that God is in our corner to bring ultimate deliverance. As, as we endeavor to live for the Lord in this manner and pursuing what these things that the psalmist has just highlighted, we can be assured that we will encounter oppositions, we'll, be encou- we'll encounter difficulties, It'll be like uh, going up the down escalator. It'll be like paddling the canoe against the down current. So therefore, as we do that, we need to be reminded that the Lord is rooting for us in our corner. God delights for us to embark on that journey. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be difficulties. But you need to remember the Lord is in your corner. Notice, as an example, verse 15 He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. When our difficulties mount and cry out to the Lord, his ears are directed toward our cry. Verse 17 restates that idea as he says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And the Lord being in our corner is the unique provision that belongs to us who are followers of God, who are his children. What he does for us is completely opposite to his commitment to those who do evil, to those who are in alignment against him. Verse 16 says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. For those who insist and persist in the way of evil, his intention is to cut off the memory of them from the earth. His commitment, by way of contrast, to the righteous is to preserve his commitment to those who practice and insist on evil is to remove. That's why in our moment of difficulty, when we feel hemmed in, our greatest resource is to cry out to God who has his eye on us and whose ear is inclined to our cry. He develops this thought even more in verses 18 down through the end, 18 through 20 in particular. This idea of God being in our corner, taking note of his children, is fleshed out a little bit more. As one who endeavors to live life consistent in the fear of God, he or she may encounter or will encounter those experiences that bring us to the end of ourselves. Now, it's important to remember, and he emphasizes it here, 
that God doesn't promise that we'll be exempt from these kinds of difficulties and profound disappointment in life. God provides deliverance for those who fear the Lord, for those who are living in accordance with God's design. But it doesn't mean that the righteous will not suffer in this life. And that's the balance, the tension that's in this psalm. God promises to deliver, but it doesn't mean that we'll never experience the difficulties. We don't experience the difficulties. We have nothing to be delivered from. And King David himself illustrates this, right? He lived with great difficulty. He lived as the man on the run, as the king in exile for a long time. Ultimately, God delivered him. But not the first time that he cried out. We are not exempt from the difficulty, but what we need to remember is that in the midst of it all, God is near and God is there. His eyes are on us. His ears inclined to our cry. He is there to act and to ultimately save. And it's that ultimate salvation that is in view in verses 21 through 22. He says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Verses 21 through 22 are directing our attention beyond just deliverance and blessing in this life. And it speaks of death and by implication, ultimately life that lies beyond the grave, life that lies beyond death. Our God is one who provides a redemption, provides a deliverance that is ultimate. It's a deliverance and it's a redemption from God's ultimate final judgment. How does he do that? And we know this morning that he does that because and through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're desirous and we're thankful, every one of us, for the temporary deliverances that we experience in life, those tight spots that we get ourselves into or that we experience, and we cry out to God and God does come and God does rescue us. The psalmist here says he delivers us out of them all. The idea there is that there is nothing, there is no kind of scenario that God cannot deliver us from. It doesn't mean that he delivers us out of every last one every time, but there's nothing that's beyond his reach. And when we encounter those things in life and experience God's deliverance, we're delighted in that. But those really are temporary deliverances. And those temporary deliverances underscore for us the need for a greater deliverance. A deliverance from the future eternal judgment of God. A deliverance that comes by us seeking refuge in him. And so the psalmist reminds us that in the midst of our current situations, we cry out to God, and so we should. We need to be reminded that he is present. He is present, and he is present to work. That's a provision that belongs uniquely to us as God's children, to those who fear the Lord, to those who are endeavoring to live life in accordance with God's design. And as we seek his face and as we cry out to him and he grants deliverance, we also have the assurance of a greater deliverance, an ultimate deliverance, an ultimate redemption, made possible, been secured for us through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That's a promise, and that's a perspective, and that's a hope that can sustain us in the crazy moments of life 
when difficulties press in on us. And so David encourages us in this psalm to cry out to God, to seek his face. And in so doing, he reminds us that living life God's way enables us to experience his presence and his work, even in those dark moments that are ultimately designed to lead us to worship. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word this morning. Thank you for this psalm of David in which he relays an experience of his which wasn't his finest moment, wasn't his wisest decision. But thank you that you still met him as he cried out to you. That reminds us, Father, that in our spiritual pilgrimage that success is not a straight upward line. Our faithfulness is jagged. We want it to be in an upward direction, but even King David, there were the ups and there were the downs. And thank you, Father, that you met him there. And thank you for his wisdom that he teaches us today. Father, thank you that you are a God who is listening, a God who has a propensity to listen to our cry, whose ear is bent when we cry out to you. Thank you that in our hard moments, our difficult moments, that you are present and you are present to work. Father, thank you for that encouragement for us as your people today. And we worship you because it, because of it. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, for his sacrifice. We thank you for your spirit who leads us, who sustains us, who enables us. We worship you, O oh God, today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.